If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, if your Bibles are used over the past few months to opening to the Gospel of John, you just need to go just a little bit to the right. It's the first book after the four Gospels. It's Luke's second book that he wrote after the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to look this morning in the second of our four sermon series on Jesus' leaders in the church at Acts chapter 6. This should be of no surprise to many of you if we're going to look at the subject of deacons. Acts 6 is a foundational text. It is literally the foundation. It is the starting point of the diaconate. But there is more going on in here than simply the first instance of deacons. And I want us to look at that. We'll be looking at the first seven verses of chapter 6 together. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would attend your word with power. That by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would not merely learn new things from your word. But that we would take them to heart. And that we would be changed by your word. That we would be made more and more into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, this is the second of four sermons for our season of nominations for officers here at Christ Church. Last week we looked with Peter in his first letter at elders. And this morning we will look at deacons. And it is interesting because deacons or the diaconate really begins officially here in the book of Acts. The office of elder, the duty of elder, goes far back into the Old Testament. 
We see elders in Israel during the time of the prophets, during the time of the kingdom of Israel. Even back into Abraham's household, we are introduced to elders. But here, deacons are introduced to us. Now, I don't want you to get the impression that that means there was no mercy ministry at all in the Old Testament. Or that there was no ministry of service in the Old Testament. But what we see here is, now as the church of Jesus Christ expands beyond the national borders of Israel, as it goes worldwide, and as the church of Jesus Christ literally explodes with growth, there is a need for an official office to have authority over duties of service and mercy. And that's where we are this morning, to look at deacons. And what I'd like us to see from our text this morning are three things. First, Luke shows us the need for deacons. Then Luke shows us the selection of deacons themselves by the people of God. And then finally, just as last week we looked at the blessing of elders, we'll look this week at the blessing of deacons. The need for deacons, the selection of deacons, and the blessing of deacons. Let's begin then with the need. It starts in verse 6, and it starts in an unusual way. Luke writes, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose. Now, when we think of challenging circumstances, we don't tend to think of growth. If I were to ask you, have you had challenging circumstances in your family, you would likely say something like this. Why, yes, pastor, there are times, there have been months when we didn't know if we were going to use up all the money before the month was over. We had difficulties because there were things around the home that needed repair that we couldn't fix. There were challenges and, and shortages. That's how we think of challenging circumstances. But here, Luke tells us the challenging thing is that there were too many Christians. That the church was growing too fast. Now, we don't normally think of that as a problem, but Luke has prepared us for this. Over and over again in the early chapters of the book of Acts, Luke talks about the growth that the church is going through. In chapter 2, verse 41, he says that after Peter preaches a sermon, about 3,000 souls were added to the church. Now, can you imagine that? That's a pretty good sermon. Could you imagine if right now, after this worship service, 3,000 people came in from Katy. That's not even very many people in Katy. But 3,000 people came in and joined the church. That's growth. That's increase. And then again in verse 47 of chapter 2, they were praising the Lord because day by day, the Lord was adding to their numbers those that were saved. How often do we as modern American Christians think about people being saved day after day and added to the church. Is that a part of your daily prayer life? Is that a part of how you interact with people? Because God certainly can save people every single day and add them to the church. And that should be our prayer. It shouldn't be just a special Sunday or even just Sundays. We should seek the Lord to add to His church and then again in chapter 4, about 5,000 were saved 
and added to the church after another sermon. That makes the first sermon seem pretty weak by comparison. 5,000 are saved. And again, in chapter 5, verse 14, Luke just says that there were many multitudes of men and women being saved. He doesn't even give us a number. So we should be prepared by now to the church growing. But this is a problem because for the church, right now, they are in a period in which the economy is bad. Now, I don't know if back in Jerusalem in the first century, they had a specific scientific definition of a recession or not. But I guarantee you that this really wasn't even a recession. This was more like a depression. You'll see later in the book of Acts that churches outside of Jerusalem have to send famine relief for the church in Jerusalem because there's not enough food to eat. This is not inflation and you have to pay more for eggs or milk at the store. This is you can't buy eggs or milk or meat or bread. There's a famine there. And what would happen is, as we see here in verse 1, the widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. That tells us two things. First, there's a daily distribution of food and resources that the church in Jerusalem has to do to allow people to live their daily lives. But it's for the widows. And in, in the days of the book of Acts, it would have been especially difficult to be a widow because men were the earners of the money, of the resources in this day. They were far more likely to be able to earn money to support a family. Women could do certain things to obtain resources or funds, but not nearly as much as men. So if a woman had her husband die, she had a great difficulty just making ends meet. But then, of course, there's an added problem that not only do you have widows in Jerusalem, if you're a widow in a small outlying village, there's almost no one in the village to help you. So what do you do? You go to the big city. You go to Jerusalem. So there's now an influx of new widows. It's a trying time. But it's not just the economy that's a problem. There's also opposition that the church faces. You see, normally, widows would be provided for through the temple. Part of the temple tax that Israelite citizens paid to the temple coffers was used to provide mercy needs for widows, orphans, and others in need. But you can imagine here, at a time in which the Jews and the authorities of the temple are opposed to Christians, after all, they wanted Jesus put to death, that they're not exactly jumping forward to help Christians and Christian widows. They're probably saying to themselves, you all deserve this. If you'd remain good Jews, then you could be taken care of. But you had to go follow this heretic. You had to go start this new sect. See if you can make yourselves and make your ends meet. So they wouldn't get any help. There would be actual opposition from the authorities. But what we know here is what is really happening is it's not just a chance bad economy. It's not even just that there's opposition. What we know is, is that Satan is at work here. Because Satan wants to destroy the church. He wants to divide the church. He doesn't want anyone coming to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't want anyone building up the kingdom of God. 
He's opposed to all of that. And so there's no particular instance of evil that's going on here, but it's a strategy of divide and conquer. It's not a frontal assault. You see, often we in today's church expect Satan to make a frontal assault on the church for him to convince Congress to pass a law banning the printing of Bibles or forbidding public worship services. Now that has happened in various places throughout the world, but it doesn't happen to us here. But Satan still attacks the church in our day. He does it undermining the church. He does it trying to sow division in the church. Satan is always on the attack. And so what we see here are emerging divisions in the church. There are two parties. Now, they're not political parties. They're the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And they're not walking around wearing buttons, vote Hellenist. I'm with the Hebrews. No, that's not what they do. And what this describes is really a language, a cultural, a, an upbringing division between different types of Christians, if I can put it that way. Not that there are different tiers of Christians, but they have different backgrounds. And so, the Hellenists, just as you would imagine from the word, they grew up in an area speaking Greek. Hellas is the ancient word for Greece. And so they would grow up speaking the language of the Roman Empire. Throughout the Roman Empire, Greek was the common language. And so they would not have grown up knowing and reading Hebrew. They probably couldn't even speak, in many instances, Aramaic, which is the common language of the Israelite people of the day. That's why there are some books of the Bible, portions of those books, that are written in Aramaic, the book of Daniel, for example. And when Jesus speaks in the Gospels, and it's recorded, it's recorded at times in Aramaic. And Matthew, for example, will say, which being translated is, and he'll list the Aramaic and translate it into, guess what? Greek. Okay, so you got Hellenists who grew up in a Greek culture and Hebrews who grew up in a more ancient Israel, Hebraic culture. And these are vast differences between people in the same church. Now, lest you think that doesn't apply to the church anymore because we all speak English, thankfully here, can understand what I'm saying. Imagine it this way. The Hellenists were also those who were newer or more open with their faith. In other words, they were more open to differences in worship. They were more open to worshiping in different languages, Greek. They were more open to change in general, whereas the Hebrews were not. They wanted things done the old-fashioned way. And so, I don't know, have you ever been to a church where there's one group of people that says, that's not how we do that here. And one group of people says, we have to do it this new way, otherwise we're going to fail. Has that ever happened to you? Well, perhaps not, but humor me. That's the division here that we see in this church. But one of the things that we should notice is, is that mercy ministry is already being done in this church in spite of the divisions, in spite of all the work, in spite of it all being laid at the feet of the apostles. It's clear that the widows were being served. There was a daily distribution. And the complaint here, although on the surface it's about being neglected about food, that's not really the complaint. You know, there's an old saying that the issue that's presented 
is never the real issue. There's always something that's presented and something behind it here. And what's behind this here is not just we don't get the proper food we need. It's why are you treating us like second-class citizens? Why aren't we important? There is a sense of division of personal animosity growing in the church. The complaint was not about the amount of food. It was about other people. Now, could this have merely been a perception that they perceived that the Hebrew widows were treated better? Certainly. But let me ask you, what is important? Perception or reality? I'll tell you the answer is yes. Because perception is reality. How we act, how we think, how we react to other people is based on our perception. And oftentimes our perceptions are very perceptive. We perceive something because that's what's going on. And so this difficulty here, this problem is facing the church. There is a need. And so how will the apostles fix this need? What will step into the gap as a solution? Well, let's first think about what they don't do. They don't do the easy solutions. They don't start by shunning the complainers. They don't say amongst themselves, let them sit over there. Let's ignore them and maybe they'll stop complaining. Have you ever seen that? They don't try to shut down the complainers. Verse 2 doesn't say, by the way, stop complaining. You don't have it that bad. They don't try to shut them down. They certainly don't try to force them out. The apostles don't respond by saying, oh, you want to complain about the daily distribution? There's the door. Use it. Get out. And the complainers themselves, they don't rise up and complain in First Presbyterian Church of Jerusalem and say, we need to go and start Second Presbyterian Church Jerusalem. Well, we can make sure that the Hellenist widows are always taken care of and will really do things right. You know how that goes. That starts, and then inevitably, what comes from that? Third Presbyterian Church, Jerusalem, right? That's not what the apostles do here. They understand that the problem is a practical issue. It's not primarily theological. They're not arguing over whether Jesus is God, or whether God is triune, or even whether the Bible is inspired. They're arguing over practical difficulties within the body of Christ, and the apostles were already handling the mercy ministry. We remember from chapter 4 that Christians sold their property for the benefit of others and they took the funds and gave it to the apostles who then made sure that no one had need. We're told in chapter 4 that they held all things in common in this way so that no one had need. No one in the church was going to starve. So the apostles hear this complaint. They see the problem and the division, and they determine to put it right at once. Now, I want you to notice something else about this. They don't begin by defending themselves. Leaders in the church don't begin by defending themselves. They don't try to protect their own rights. They don't respond to this complaint by saying, do you have any idea how much work we do? We're teaching Bible studies. We're holding prayer meetings. 
we're selling property, we're dividing up goods, we're, we're sending out missionaries. Seriously, could you stop complaining for just a minute? They don't start there. But they realize that the task is also too big for them, and so they don't fall into an opposite error. Have you ever tried to, or observed to see someone with a task that was too much for them? You tried to help. Maybe someone's working on a big piece of machinery and it's obvious they need assistance. Maybe someone's cooking and they've got four or five burners going at once and they're trying to keep track, make sure nothing scorches. And you say, well, can I help you? Can I give a hand? What can I do? And the response is, no, 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 I got it. Leave it alone. I can do it all. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. I can do all of it. Because you see, we're afraid to ask for help. Because we think somehow that's people accusing us of incompetence rather than offering assistance. And the apostles avoid that grave error. They don't say, no, 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 we got this. They say in verse 2, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick from out among you seven men of good repute. They don't want to keep all of this to themselves. Now, there's something else, I think, going on here. They realize the relative importance of the work before them. You see, I think often we read verse 2 and we get the wrong impression. The apostles say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And we hear preaching... The word and prayer is important. This other stuff is not. And so we're not going to be bothered with doing it. But that's actually not what they say. Because if they were to say that, they would leave it undone. They would say, I'm not going to bother with this. Have you ever had this happen in your family? I do this. Someone talks about something that needs to be done that's not that important. And I'll often say something like, yeah, that's number 682 on my list. I'll get to it when I get to it. I've got all these other things to do. That's not what they say here. What they say here is this is actually so important that we've got to have a solution now. And that's because the church is more than a preaching station. The church is more than a theological institute. The church is a community of God's people. It is the family of God. And so these instances of unity, of community, of assistance are crucial to the church. We don't just come and hear the Bible and go home and never speak to one another. That's not a church. No, in a church we take interest in each other, we pray for one another, we help one another. And the apostles realize how crucial that is to the life of the people of God. And so what they say is, the word is crucially important, and we're given to that task, and it is not right that we should give that up. And the word here for right is very interesting. It doesn't just mean correct, it means desirable. It is not desirable. It wouldn't be good for us, and it wouldn't be good for you if we give up on the ministry of the word. We cannot abandon the word of God. There's one other interesting thing about their statement. There's a word in verse 2 that should be in italics. Now, if you're familiar with Bible translations, 
oftentimes Bible translators will italicize words that are not found in the original language, but are supplied in order to help us understand what's going on in English. And you, quite frankly, have to do that. Because there's not a one-to-one -one equivalence of every word in every language. And the italicized word in this verse should be preaching. It doesn't occur here. The Greek actually says, it's not right that we should give up the word of God. Now, preaching obviously is implied. That's what the apostles have been doing. But you see here that the word of God is a ministry that goes beyond preaching. And it is a part of the lifeblood of every church. So how will the apostles solve this problem? You know, oftentimes, especially in businesses, when they are faced with a problem, with a, a scarcity, with a shortage, what the business will do is pull back and say, we can't meet these needs. We need to stop doing certain things. And particularly bad leaders in business will begin meeting shortages by cutting funding for sales and research and development. Sort of to make certain that they won't sell things in the future and make the problem worse. But that's not what the apostles do here. They actually solve the problem by expanding the ministry of the church. They don't go out and get some experts to come in and tell them how to be more efficient. They don't try to do everything themselves. They don't say, we will just work harder. No. What they do is they bring the whole church together. They summoned the full number of the disciples. And I think what we have here in Acts 6, verse 2, is the first recorded instance of a congregational meeting. They call all of the church together. And they say, because the problem that we're facing is division, the solution has to be one of unity. It has to be one in which we seek to heal this division and do it through ministry. And so they say to the congregation, choose from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now I want you to see something that is very practical for Christ church today and is something that isn't often emphasized enough. I say this as a lecturer in a graduate school on church government. The apostles actually trust the congregation. They don't say, okay, we're going to go off and have a committee meeting. We're going to find you six or seven guys. Those will be your ones that will be in charge of this. No, they say, you need to look out amongst yourselves and find seven men. Now, I want you to also notice that they don't say to the congregation, and you know, whoever you think's fine is fine with us. If you want the seven wealthiest men, that's fine. The seven tallest men, that's fine. You know, do whatever you want. You're the congregation, you're in charge. No, that's not what they say. They give very strict parameters as to the qualifications of these men. They say they are to be of good repute or reputation. They are to be full of the Spirit, spiritual men. They're to be wise men. And that is whom we will appoint to this duty. Now, these guidelines are important. The men who are to be in charge of this mercy ministry are to be leaders. They're to have authority. You see, we might think, well, pastor, 
do we really need someone to be in charge of mercy? Can't anyone do that? Do we really need someone to be in charge of service? I mean, any, most people could be involved in serving. And the answer is, of course they can. But you need someone to lead those efforts. You need someone to lead in mercy, someone to lead in service, and to employ other people, and to make sure <coughs> that the congregation as a whole is involved. One of the main tasks of the deacons is not merely to do the work. Because when deacons do that, they would create an error that the apostles avoided. No, it's to also employ congregants in that work and to let them use their gifts, but to lead them. And that's what's going on here. So they need to be men of good reputation. The congregation has to have confidence in them that they can actually do the work. You don't choose people who aren't capable. You know, you wouldn't want to put someone in charge of something if he's always absent-minded and forgetting everything. That's not the person to put in charge of the checklist. You know that guy that when you tell him something basic, he gets a pen out and writes it on his hand so he won't forget? That's not the guy to put in charge. It's got to be someone who can remember, someone who can organize, and someone who can lead. But they also need to show wisdom. They need to be competent in the work itself. And this kind of work, especially a work of mercy, requires more than just doing. It requires dealing with people. It's people work. Don't ever get the impression that the elders take care of the people stuff in the church and the deacons take care of the things stuff in the church. They don't. Mercy ministry is the most people-intensive ministry in the church. And as they serve others, they're involving people. They need to be men who are wise. But overall, and where it begins, they need to be spiritual men. They need to be men filled with the Holy Spirit. Men who are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and equipped by God for service. And we see this because in two of the seven of the first deacons, two men are so spiritually gifted, we read the book of Acts and we wonder if they're really deacons. Because they're out evangelizing and preaching and converting people, Stephen and Philip. Yes, they were deacons. They were just filled with the Spirit. The last qualification I shouldn't even have to give you and wouldn't have had to do so for 1,900 plus years of the church, but I have to now. They're to pick out seven men. Men. Now, it's not people. Some of you may know that in Greek there are two words for the word man. One word you know because it's related to the word we get anthropology from. It's anthropos. And that means a man, a human being. It could be used of men, mankind, men and women together, men, women, and children. It's a generic word for person. And then there is another Greek word, andres, which means male or husband. It's very specifically male. It's never applied to a female in the Bible or really in any of Greek literature. That's the word that's used here. Seven Andres, males, men. That's an absolute qualification. Well, the work is expanded out. And it's interesting what the congregation does. Do you see who they choose and bring to the apostles? 
Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolaus. Do you notice who's not here? There's no Ezekiel. There's no Jeremiah or Isaiah. There's no Jacob. They're all Greek names. Every single one of them. And I think what's happening here is the congregation recognizes that the best way to heal this breach is to bring Hellenists and put them in charge of the daily distribution to make sure there can be no more complaints by the Hellenists about the daily distribution. You're in charge. And by the way, to show how united we are, we trust that these Greek men will make sure that the Hebrew widows are not neglected as well. It's, it's a brilliant strategy by the congregation. And the apostles stay focused. Look at verse 4. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They will persevere in this. They will continue on in this. This is a future tense. They're not hesitant to say, we are going to be doing this. It is an ongoing activity. And it's very interesting here. Because we, are once again, are tempted in the church to view the elders as having the important work. And the deacons as getting the leftovers. And it even goes so far in some churches, if a man shows gifting and godliness, the leaders in the church will say, well, you know what, maybe he's an elder, but we're not sure. Let's let him try a few years as a deacon first, kind of as a training ground. The deacons can be seen as the junior varsity club. But you see, that's not what the text says here. The text is actually pretty forceful, because what... The apostles say is, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Do you know what the word ministry is here of the word? It's deacon. The deaconing of the word. That's the word for service or ministry. Our Lord Jesus Christ is actually called a deacon in the Bible. He is a minister of God. That's how important the work of the deacons is. It is ministry. It is something that God has designed, purposed, and fitted his people for. So do not let thoughts cross your mind of rankings with respect to officers. It is spheres. The elders operate within the sphere of the ministry of the word and prayer, and deacons operate within the sphere of service and mercy. But we have to understand that it is the deacons that are the foundation of the ministry of the elders. Let me put it to you this way. If I were to, well, I can't say this. If someone other than myself were to stand up here and preach, and there were to be no amplification, would it be easy to follow them? Or let me put it to you this way, even for myself, how easily could you follow me in your Bibles if the lights didn't work and they were all off? How easy could you pay attention to the preaching of the Word if the air conditioning didn't work and it was 102 in here right now? You see, these sound like simple, run-of-the-mill things, but they're absolutely crucial to the ministry of the Word. The fact that we have 
chairs to sit in. The fact that we have Sunday school rooms that are equipped with chairs and boards and markers and screens and things that equip teachers to teach the Word of God. You see, this is the purview of the deacons and their service. You just don't notice it until it doesn't work. And then you run around and find someone to help. Now, I told you last week, I do not have the gifts of a deacon. So if something breaks or a bulb goes out, do not come to Pastor Greco. I will look at you with a blank stare. I don't even know where they keep the bulbs to replace burnt out bulbs. Okay? And you certainly don't want me fixing any of the plumbing. But it's perfectly appropriate to find a deacon. Now, again, this doesn't mean that a deacons are glorified janitors. Would you fix this bulb for me now? No, but it's making the diaconate aware of things that need to be done so that they who are in charge of this can determine how and when best to do this work. That's what deacons well, briefly, in verse 7 we see the conclusion of this. We saw last week the blessing of elders. This week we see the blessing of deacons. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So what is the blessing of the election of these deacons? How important are deacons? Well, the first blessing we see is that the Lord gives victory to His church. Satan is defeated. Do you see this? The next verse is not, and the church split and they hated each other. No, they continued actually to grow. Ministry expanded. More people came to hear the word of God. Satan is defeated by the work of of our Lord, and the word continued to increase. Now, this is one word, one verb, increase in an imperfect tense, which means it happened over and over and over again. It wasn't a discrete time. Every week, every day, every month, the word of God increased because God gave deacons to his church. This is an ongoing blessing to the people of God. And so it is for you and for me. We are blessed to have deacons. And we only have deacons because God has given us deacons. Because remember, the prime requirement for being a deacon is to be full of the Spirit. And that is the one thing that no man can prepare himself to be. It is the work of a sovereign God. Then there's the practical second blessing that God gives. He gives growth. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Here again, Luke is saying, I can't say 3,000, I can't say five. I don't even know how many. It's just a lot. That's what Luke's saying. And it's unusual because Luke is a very precise historian. He likes to give details. But here it's so much that he can't even get his arms around it. There, the, there are a great many priests who begin to join the church. The, the church is multiplied greatly. 
But it's not just that the church got bigger. Do you see the little detail that Luke includes? I told you he likes to give precise facts. It's not just that the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. What happens specifically here? He tells us that a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, why is that important? When I read passages like this, I can't help to think in my imagination that God is smiling when things like this happen. Because what he does is he takes his enemy's plans and he turns them on their head for blessing of God's people. Why did the widows not have what they needed? I told you it's because they couldn't go to the temple. They couldn't get relief there. Who's in charge of the temple? The priests. Do you see what the Lord is doing here? He's not only equipping men to lead mercy ministry, he is giving experienced men to the church to be involved in that ministry. He's solving the problem by making his enemies his servants. That's what God does. That's why we should never be discouraged. I don't care what you read in the news. I don't care what you see on TV. I don't care what's on the internet. There is no possibility ever of the church of Jesus Christ being defeated. Ever. It cannot happen. I know, and you know, the end of the story. God wins. And what we see here is a, a vignette, a story, to give us confidence. And so as we labor in this world, as we see struggles around us, we know that God has provided for us. Our deacons were instrumental in dealing with COVID here at our church, in both the physical plant, in both providing assistance and resources to people, in working and laboring ceaselessly with members of the congregation to make sure that we could project the live stream out to those who still to this day can't come and are watching this service right now. Our deacons head these things up. When we had difficulties and people were out of jobs, the deacons were there to meet with them, to encourage them, to pray with them, to provide assistance with them. And so, I'm like you. I see the price of groceries going up. I hear the economic news. But I still sleep at night. I'm not afraid. Because I know God has promised to take care of his people. And he shows how he keeps that promise practically and visually by giving his people deacons. Let's pray.